Welcome to the eighth episode in the fourth season of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and with me is our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Center. This week, we're going to discuss the idea of public commissions, not to examine a heavy-handed government response to a peaceful protest, but to examine government's heavy-handed responses to the COVID-19 panic. In Alberta, a commission is being set up, chaired by former Reform Party leader Preston Manning. Recently, in articles appearing in publications down in the States, Stanford professor Jay Bhattacharya has been calling for all states to convene commissions or panels to examine the various public health measures employed to combat the virus. Professor Bhattacharya, by the way, has served as an expert witness for the Justice Center in various anti-lockdown cases here in Canada. The basis for his call for formal examinations is the fact that governments and their public health officials got so much wrong. Okay, John, I'm going to read a tweet that I think sums up the argument, and then I'll get you to respond. This tweet is by a guy named Justin Hart. He's the author of a book that came out in October last year titled Gone Viral, How COVID Drove the World Insane. Mr. Hart writes online at something called Rational Ground that can be found at covidreason.substack.com. On February 23rd, his tweet quickly gathered more than a million views. It's pretty harsh. It goes like this, quote, To repeat, they got everything wrong. Transmission of the disease wrong. Asymptomatic spread wrong. PCR testing wrong. Fatality rate wrong. Lockdowns wrong. Community triggers wrong. Business closures wrong. School closures wrong. Quarantining healthy people wrong. Impact on youth wrong. Hospital overload wrong. Plexiglass barriers wrong. Social distancing wrong. Outdoor spread wrong. Masks wrong. Variant impact wrong. Natural immunity wrong. Vaccine efficacy wrong. Vaccine injury wrong. Did they get a single thing right? Unquote. Okay, John, observations, response? Well, some of these issues have been tackled a lot by the Justice Center in the last three years, not all of them, uh, but one, the PCR testing, most certainly in our Manitoba court action, the head of the Winnipeg labs admitted under oath that when the Manitoba government was talking about a thousand COVID cases, they knew that at least 560 of those 1,000 people, 56%, did not have COVID. And the whole PCR testing was, was a horrible part of successful fear-mongering. Uh, the PCR test depends entirely on the number of times that you double or, or duplicate the virus remnant by way of cycles. So, you know, you get a swab up your nose, there's some you know, mucus or whatever the <laughs> the stuff inside your nose gets gets analyzed. And then to see if there's a COVID remnant of, of some kind, and then it gets doubled and then doubled again and then doubled again and then doubled again and then doubled again. Now, depending on the number of cycles, if, if you double it 40 times, you'll find that, you know, 95% of the people test positive for COVID. If you amplify it uh, 10 or 20 times, you'll get very few people. And so 
it depends entirely the PCR test. Th- thankfully, we're we're past that. Hopefully, for good. But we had these PCR tests in 2020, just keeping the public panic up because the media love to say, "Oh, we got another, you know, 1,000 cases last week." Well, prior to 2020, uh, the word case referred to somebody who was sick with a disease. But now we had these so-called cases of people who are perfectly healthy, but you give them a PCR test and you do a, a 40 cycles, so 40 times you amplify, and there's some dead virus remnant in, in their nose, and they're declared to be a COVID case, suggesting that they are sick with COVID when they're not sick with COVID. So uh, that's one of the, the cases. Asymptomatic spread, we have uh, talked about that more than once and asked the government to produce its medical and scientific evidence showing that the um, COVID can spread asymptomatically. Nothing produced. All you get, uh, and we talked about this on a podcast, the uh, the Nova Scotia Health Minister declared that it, it, is, it is settled and established that COVID spreads asymptomatically. Right. So when you ask them to produce their report, they just declare that we don't need any reports. That's, that's already settled. They will not give you a report to uh, a scientific study to back up their assertion that COVID spreads asymptomatically. Another point on this list, fatality rate. We have been arguing for three years that this is not the Spanish flu of 1918, which for new listeners, that, that was a nasty, nasty virus that killed at least 20 million people around the world, 1918 to 1920, at a time when world population was about a quarter of what it is now. So the COVID deaths have not come anywhere close to that. So the fatality rate, we've tackled that more than once. Lockdowns, we've been asking for three years for governments to monitor lockdown harms. And um, because the, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms requires governments, when they are violating our freedoms of, of association and bodily autonomy, mobility rights, et cetera, they have to do a cost-benefit analysis or a harms-benefits analysis. It's finally happening. We've got a COVID commission in Alberta, but uh, do we have any in other provinces, Kevin? Not that I've found at the moment, no. In fact, uh, I think that uh, they're busy criticizing the formation of the one in Alberta at the moment. I, <laughs> yeah. I know they did have in Quebec – an inquiry into the nursing home uh, scandal oh, yes. after yeah. the initial uh, wave of COVID. I, so that's the only one that I really know about. I mean, at Ontario, I'm not sure. I, I didn't see anything. I just want to back up for a second here because, you know, I mean, you talked about us talking about it. Yeah, we knew about the PCR tests. But, you know, in terms of a public inquiry, there's a lot of information that we could turn up. Just two off the top of my head regarding the PCR test. How much money did we spend on it? here in Alberta, for Mm. instance, right? Okay. And you know something, even though you and I talked about it really early on, I actually don't have an idea when they officially stopped using the PCR test or even if they did, you know, that's something that can be put on the record, right? You know, like, okay, so you, you know, you spent this many millions of dollars on the PCR test and you stopped doing it in 2022 or something, you know, at least we'll have that on the record, right? That's the kind of stuff that I'd like to see turned up in a, you know, public inquiry. Also, you know, you talked about them making bold statements. Uh, Well, of course, you know, at at that point, you can challenge them and put it on the record that they're not producing anything, right? 
that's to me the the benefit of uh, having a commission and having as many as possible. Yeah, absolutely. So this list goes through you know, PCR testing, fatality rates, uh, lockdown harms, business closures, school closures, <laughs> quarantining healthy people, uh, negative impact on youth, hospital overload. Now, there is another one. In, in the past three years, the Justice Centre has posted on its website Alberta government data showing that the Alberta government's fear-mongering that it was doing with the daily news conferences with the, the premier and chief medical officers – that the actual data from hospitals didn't support the government's claim that the hospitals were overloaded and overcrowded. Uh, we also had photographs from nurses that showed all these empty wards from these supposedly overloaded hospitals. But of course, here, here's the crux of that. Even if hospitals are overloaded, any doctor or nurse or even a patient for that matter will know that this has been overcrowded hospitals, has been a problem in Canada for decades uh, it's not caused by COVID, and you know, with COVID gone, it's not cured. It's part of a dysfunctional government monopoly medical system that has no incentives for the the wise and efficient spending of tax dollars built into it. I want to sort of put this out to you. I guess it might have been my opening question as well. I suppose you know, if you were put at the head of a commission to examine the government response to the COVID-19 panic, what would you start with? How would you proceed? Like, you know, I mean, I would, the reason I read this list is I kind of thought, well, you know, if I were, I would just crib this list and say, okay, these are, these are the things I'm going to call on, uh, you know, the uh, government to respond to. So, but anyways, how would you proceed? I would probably follow along the same lines of, of Dr. Jay Bhattacharya and uh, seven other medical experts who are calling themselves the Norfolk Group. Uh, Norfolk is the city in uh, Connecticut or some other state where, where they met. And they've developed uh, questions for a COVID-19 commission. So you just cribbed that. Okay, great. I'll see if I can find a link to that. So the eight members of the Norfolk Group mm -hmm. are Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, epidemiologist, health economist, Stanford University professor of medicine, Dr. Leslie Bienen, or Bienen, faculty member at Oregon Health and Science University, Portland State University School of Public Health. Dr. Ram Durazetti, emergency room physician and computational engineer for medical decision-making, associate prof at Stanford School of Medicine. Tracy Beth Hoag, uh, physician and PhD epidemiologist, uh, University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Martin Kuldorf, epidemiologist and biostatistician, uh, Harvard University professor of medicine, although on leave. Uh, Dr. Marty McCary, surgeon, healthcare policy scientist, John Hopkins University. Dr. Margaret Smelkinson, infectious disease scientist and microscopist. And Dr. Stephen Templeton, immunologist, associate professor at Indiana University School of Medicine. And that website is www.norfolkgroup.org. Norfolk, N-O-R-F-O-L-K-G-R-O-U-P, norfolkgroup.org. And so they have a ton of questions there. They have an 80-page report which mentions some 
issues, but also asks a lot of uh, questions. So it's kind of a combination. For example, uh, they talk about cancer. Uh, the pandemic saw a decrease in new cancer cases, but not because of less cancer. There was a significant decrease in the number of patients undergoing screening tests for cancer, and thus in the number of diagnoses of cancerous and precancerous lesions during the pandemic. So the questions they would put forward, uh, how many people had a cancer diagnosis delayed during the pandemic? What did the CDC and state health departments do to avoid this problem? What have they done to ensure catch-ups with cancer screenings? What will be the toll on future cancer mortality due to delayed cancer diagnoses? What is the toll in terms of longer and more expensive cancer treatment due to delayed cancer diagnoses? This is something the Justice Center talked about in, in early 2020, the, the tsunami of cancer diagnoses. And in these questions here, Dr. Bhattacharya and the other seven, they also ask about not only is it that, that people are more people are going to die through delayed diagnosis, but also treatment that might be far more expensive. I'm assuming that if you catch the cancer early, maybe you can do a quick surgery, you know, take out a bad part. But to treat the third and fourth stage cancer is presumably much more complex, much more expensive. Presumably, after they examine that issue, they would come up with some kind of recommendation as to what we would do in the future in a pandemic situation, looking at the cost of the uh, suspending the, the treatments and uh, versus the uh, lives supposedly saved. And they, I would say, uh, I would guess that they would recommend that they don't stop cancer exploratory uh, diagnoses, that type of thing. So presumably, again, this is the kind of thing we want to see come out of uh, commissions. Yeah. Another topic, they address cardiovascular disease. Both lockdowns and fear reduce hospital visits while increasing cardiovascular deaths at home. In 2020, there was an increase in deaths from both heart disease and stroke. The increase was especially pronounced among Black, Hispanic, and Asian Americans. How much of this increase was collateral lockdown damage? So there's a good question. We saw the National Post uh, back in 2020 wrote about this. If you get a heart attack, you're supposed to go to the hospital uh, as soon as possible because you get treatment that you know minimizes or reduces the damage of the heart attack. If you get a heart attack and do not go to the hospital and go, get no treatment afterwards, the impact is worse. And so, again, it, it, it was this fanatical ideological uh, commitment to a conclusion that was reached ahead of time, apart from any evidence, the conclusion was already declared that lockdowns were really good and really necessary and would save a lot of lives. There's that fanatical ideological commitment to that idea and an unwillingness to do the cost-benefit analysis. And that persists to this day. This is why you get some people are upset with Premier Daniel Smith in Alberta having this COVID inquiry commission uh, having Preston Manning on it. Uh, I mean, some people don't like Preston Manning, but I think their real beef is not so much with him. It's just kind of how dare you? <laughs> right. How dare you? How dare you hold a public inquiry to to question? <laughs> we, you know, that that we we may have done something wrong. 
Right. No, that's why I like uh, Bhattacharya's idea of calling for commissions in each of the states. You know, I don't care if they have like one in every state and they're all asking the same question. They're probably going to get a bunch of different answers. And I think from that, you know, we might be able to at least come up with some kind of reasonable response for the future. Yeah. With the other childhood vaccination rates is, is another example. Um, Dr. Bhattacharya and the others say that uh, childhood vaccination rates plummeted uh, starting in March of 2020. The administration of the second dose of the measles vaccine fell by more than 90%. Now, childhood vaccinations did rebound later, but they're still below the baseline. And Related questions, this vaccine skepticism has increased during the pandemic because of inaccurate and overly broad messaging around COVID-19 vaccines. I mean, when you get these vaccines pushed on people, which is very much what happened in direct and blatant violation of the Nuremberg Code, which requires fully informed consent for any medical treatment. So when these COVID vaccines became mandatory in the sense that if, if you were not going to get injected with this substance for which there's no long-term safety data, you would be punished, and people were punished by being kicked out of university, by being fired from their jobs. Now, there's a lot of people that are you know, very pro-vaccine on polio and uh, measles and, and uh, kind of the vaccines that we've been using for decades. There are people who are pro-vaccine that were not in favor of this COVID vaccine, but now you've got a general rise in anti-vaccination attitude in the population, which Dr. Bhattacharya thinks is, is not a good thing. Mm -hmm. Mental health, uh, of course, uh, we've got lots of data that there's increasing anxiety, depression, substance abuse, drug overdoses, suicidal ideation. Uh, so questions are asked about that. Homicides and domestic violence, Physical activity, it's been well known for decades that physical activity is good for you and reduces your chance of uh, cancer, heart attack, stroke. I mean, there's just general health benefits. So questions that Dr. Bhattacharya would ask were, why were people discouraged from going outside to exercise? Why were beaches, basketball courts, playgrounds, and similar venues closed, preventing people from exercising and socializing in very low-risk and outdoor environments? Why were many gyms closed by local and state governments? Why were sports programs for children terminated? Uh, in children ages 2 to 19, the rate of body mass index increase approximately doubled during the pandemic. What are the long-term consequences on childhood obesity and diabetes? As of March of 2021, 42% of adults reported gaining weight during the pandemic, an average weight gain of 29 pounds. What are the long-term consequences on adult obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, etc.? They go on to talk about uh, the human immune system. What effect did the lockdowns have on children's immune systems and long-term ability to fight off a variety of diseases? Well, yeah, you know, this is, again, it flies in the face of decades, if not centuries, of medical science understanding that we need to be exposed to different bacteria in moderation, but we need to be out and about. And when you're at the shopping mall and at the store and, and at the school and at the gym, et cetera, et cetera, and you strengthen your immune system by having an ongoing exposure to different viruses, different bacteria. 
And if you're locking yourself up, uh, it's like your immune system's not getting any exercise, right? Right. Like we need the human body. It's good for the human body. And you don't need to be a doctor to say this. Okay. Just like you, you don't need to be a veterinarian to recognize that the certain creature is a dog. You can look at it and say, well, it's a dog, you know, it's like, right, okay. Oh, but are you, do you have a PhD in you know, biology? Well, you know, no, but, but that's a dog. So it's good for the human body. I mean, any doctor will tell you this, would have told you this prior to 2020. You need to exercise. It's good for you. And the immune system is similar. If you are locked up indoors all the time and have no contact with other people, your immune system is going to get weakened in the same way that your body gets weakened if you don't exercise your body. Okay, fair enough. So they're going to they're going to ask them to produce evidence, I think, uh, to support why they did th this. Is that correct? Like you're going to say, okay, what evidence did you use to invoke lockdowns? Was it based on what study? And at that point, they're presumably going to have to come up with some kind of pre-2020 study that says lockdowns work. And I don't think there are that many. I'm not sure. I haven't gone looking myself. Well, it's, never been, it's never been tried. I mean, the closest we got to it, during, during the Spanish flu of 1918 to 1920, there were some very minimal and very temporary lockdowns that were experimented with in different American cities. So there was, right, because this, again, was a major virus that killed a lot of people, including especially people in the, in the age 20 to 40 age bracket. So the Spanish flu of 1918 was very, very different from COVID. COVID is a thousand times more deadly for sick and elderly people than what it is for young and healthy people. Uh, if you're under 70 and in decent health, uh, COVID threatens you as much as uh, the, the risk of getting killed in a, in a car accident. In fact, when you look at the non-fatal health risks of driving a car, so various kinds of injuries, but, but not death, <laughs> driving a car is a lot more risky than um, the, the danger of COVID to somebody uh, who's not in a long-term care facility. So, so there were, there were, but getting back to this, this research, I mean, there were no studies because all we have is we have some data from the Spanish flu of 1918, that there were some states that they closed churches for one or two Sundays. Uh, they placed minor restrictions or maybe, you know, major restrictions for a week or two. And what generally happened is that the, the those temporary and fairly minimal lockdowns, they did delay the spread of the Spanish flu through the population. So they did have a temporary short-term impact. But what still happened is that the Spanish flu worked its way through all of American society and the whole world. And those lockdowns, which were, again, minimal and temporary, they didn't really lower the ultimate mortality rate. So the Spanish flu was going to kill whom it was going to kill. And yeah, you could kind of slow it down temporarily with some lockdown restrictions. You know, so here you had more than two years of this uh, of violation of our of our charter rights and freedoms. Uh, but there's no evidence that 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 reduced the ultimate mortality rate because COVID made its way through all of society and really took a, a big toll in the long term care facilities, which is where 80 percent of the COVID deaths were. But I suppose, uh, well, if you follow Bhattacharya, and I've seen this in several columns, uh, maybe it's sort of a reprint of the same column, but he, he keeps saying this, this quote I'm going to read from a Newsweek article, uh, which he co-authored a couple of weeks ago. The purpose of a COVID commission should not be to blame or prosecute, nor to weaponize it as a political tool. Well, yeah, so in other words, 
you're on a fact-finding mission. Did this stuff work? It's not a matter of saying, oh, you guys screwed up and now we're going to punish you. No, we're going to say you can't do this again if it didn't work. And that's uh, – so I think the onus is on the people that made the decisions to prove that they worked. Isn't that sort of the purpose of the commission? Would you – or a commission? Well, I think it makes more sense to uh, just focus on an analysis. Now, people with a thirst for justice ultimately will also want to see that in cases where public officials, both elected and unelected government officials, had information that showed that the lockdowns were harmful and unwise, and then if they deliberately disregarded that information. In my travels in, in BC, Ontario, Alberta, and, and uh, public meetings and speaking, speaking at public meetings, I mean, this theme comes up over and over and over again is, is when will the criminals be brought to justice is the way that the question is put to me. Now, I do think that there's validity to that if there were people who knew better. You know, like what was Dr. Bonnie Henry, chief medical officer in British Columbia, thinking when she shut down houses of worship entirely while permitting restaurants and gyms and, and stores to be open at 15% capacity? Why couldn't churches also be open at 15% capacity? Was that just merely anti-religious bigotry? Uh, was that her own personal bias? Because, you know, perhaps she is not somebody who attends a house of worship and can't really wrap her head around how important that is to, to, to many people, Muslims and Orthodox Jews and Hindus and Sikhs and Christians and others. You know, there, there are issues like that. But I, I think the starting point should be exactly what you just said a minute ago, that it's not it's not about finding blame or pointing fingers, and it's not about weaponizing. But it is important that we do take a hard look at this. And the next time there's some scary virus, uh, are we just going to unthinkingly dive into lockdowns again? Or are we going to say, hey, wait a minute, lockdowns inflicted a lot of harm on a lot of people. And if, if it does more harm than good, maybe we shouldn't do it. Right. Yeah. And that's, I think, part of the commission idea as well as and a, a complete accounting of the whole affair, right? You know, you're not only lockdowns, you had other issues as well, masks. And, and as you said earlier, you know, there was a cost in terms of cancer diagnosis. All these things can be put in one place so that if they decide, okay, we're going to go back to lockdowns, then we can go, hey, here, here's 2,000 pages of report that says, no, they don't work. <laughs> they actually cause more harm than good. So that's why it's necessary, I think, for every jurisdiction to do this. Absolutely. Dr. Bhattacharya also talks about uh, food insecurity. He's got questions on that, cultural and sports activities. Now, we've got a small-scale Canadian equivalent. The Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms has retained an expert witness in one of our court actions. This is a court action involving Mr. Randy Hillier, uh, quite well-known, especially in Ontario. He was a member of the... Um, Ontario Provincial Parliament, so MPP, Member of Provincial Parliament in Ontario uh, for, for quite a few years. Uh, I think a few months ago when the Ford government was re-elected, Randy Hillier did not run again. He had been an independent. Uh, he got a ticket for attending a peaceful protest outside, I think, in Brockville, Ontario, April the 8th, 2021. And so we have a um, report of Dr. Kevin Bardosh that we are entering into this court action. Dr. Bardosh 
is a medical anthropologist and implementation scientist with expertise in infectious disease, public health, agricultural systems, and global development. Medical anthropology is the study of social, cultural, economic, and political factors that affect health and medicine. He is an affiliate assistant professor in the School of Public Health, University of Washington, USA. Uh, He's worked in more than 20 countries, including Canada, on health and development research. Dr. Bardosh has authored or co-authored 45 peer-reviewed publications. Uh, This includes the British Medical Journal Global Health article titled The Unintended Consequences of COVID-19 Vaccine Policy, Why Mandates, Passports, and Restrictions May Cause More Harm Than Good. Pretty on point. Yeah, very impressive uh, CV. Dr. Bardosh, uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, was involved in research on lockdown policies in Haiti, Haiti, Vietnam, Kenya, Philippines, Uganda, uh, as well as vaccine policies in North America and Europe. So he was asked by the Justice Center to prepare a report as an expert witness to provide his professional opinion on the following questions. One, what was the impact of COVID-19 restrictions on both mental and physical health of Canadians? Question number two, what was the socioeconomic impact of COVID-19 restrictions, including but not limited to impact on education, employment, minorities, and vulnerable groups, including the elderly? Question number three, what was the impact of restrictions on the use of outdoor facilities and outdoor gatherings? And the fourth question, what other important impacts did pandemic restrictions have on Canadians? Well, based on those qualifications, I I think I would nominate him uh, for uh, a witness at the Alberta Commission. Uh, I don't know. we got a paper here all ready to go. Let's save some money and some time uh, by putting that in there. That's Mr. that's Man. an excellent suggestion. I will I will see what I can do on that front and see if I can have conversation with Mr. Manning or with anybody else involved in the commission and bring this uh, report to their attention. I think we've got a few of them from the court cases uh, around the country that uh, we might be uh, able. I know that Jay Bhattacharya was an expert witness in the Manitoba case and in the Alberta case, so there's expert testimony and papers were put in for those cases. So. Yeah, well, absolutely. The, the, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya was, was an expert witness in our Alberta court challenge to lockdowns, which was filed in December of 2020. And so we took his paper that was uh, submitted to the court as an expert report, and we basically converted that into a paper with you know 99% identical contents uh, called The Science of COVID and looking at, at lockdowns and lockdown harms. And that's also at www.jccf.ca. Oh, yeah. There's lots that we can contribute here. That's kind of why we're talking about it now, right? We're going to gather some steam here to get going on this commission. Even if we're not invited, we'll be sending lots of paper over. Yeah. So Dr. Bardosh, in his report, he, he notes the difference uh, between restrictions on the one hand and recommendations and voluntary behavior change on the other hand. Restrictions narrow the scope of human agency, whereas recommendations and voluntary behavior changes allow the public to adapt to their unique life circumstances and permit individuals and their social networks to flexibly address other non-COVID-related human needs. Yes, <laughs> that's the whole point of how ideological this has been the last 
three years, you get a fanatical fixation on one real harm, namely the, the COVID virus and the threat that it did pose to uh, sick and elderly people in long-term care facilities. But where where we lose common sense and, and move into ideology is where this one objective is pushed on the population by government as the only thing that matters, the only thing you're allowed to care about. You know, you're only allowed to care about trying to stop COVID, even though I think that's not possible. The virus did spread everywhere in spite of lockdowns. But the government says, I'm telling you what your priority is. Your priority in life is to avoid the spread of COVID and to do whatever you can to stop COVID from spreading. That's your top priority. And, you know, to hell with your emotional, psychological, mental, and spiritual needs to uh, connect with friends and to meet with family and to enjoy life and to have things like, you know, children attending dance class and having a year-end performance and children going to school and participating in a play and putting on a play performance at the end of the school year. And, you know, sports and cultural activities, the ideology says that, that nothing else matters. And in that sense, it's very much, it's like the communist and other ideologies over the ages where the government says, the only important thing is for everybody to get with program of building the worker's paradise. And so nothing else matters and your rights and freedoms don't matter because you have to follow this single objective of building socialism, building the worker's paradise. That was the, the ideology of communism. And so with COVID, you get something similar where there's no freedom to say, well, you know what? I'm, you know, 60 years old or, you know, or 50 or 40 and I'm healthy and I'm not afraid of COVID. And it's more important for me to be physically active and healthy and go to the gym and play sports. That's more important to me than trying to avoid COVID. And the government says, no, you can't make that choice. Well, I suppose, yeah, there's there's all these medical questions and that's you know, but the big thing in the list that I read out of that tweet was, you know, everything scientifically that they got wrong. But there's also other issues as well that I think that a commission can examine. And that would be, you know, how the government functioned, you know, it was bringing in these laws without very much democratic oversight, you know, there was stuff like that. There was also, as I mentioned earlier, you know, costs that should be examined. One thing that I've always wanted to see are the contracts for the vaccine uh, and the liability exemptions, you know, I would like to see the contracts, all that stuff, make those public. You know, I'd like to see somebody report on the role of what so-called big pharma in these uh, pandemics, uh, how exactly it worked, especially in Canada. I know that based on lobbying records that, you know, there were meetings between uh, various companies and the, uh, the the provincial health ministers and their public health officers. So I'd like to see some openness about that as well. So, I, you know, these are other considerations that can be explored in a public commission rather than simply scientific questions. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So many things that need to be exposed and to have the, uh, the, the light of day shine on matters that, that have been hidden and buried. And certainly every person has every right to know uh, about the specific nature of contracts entered into between governments and uh, vaccine ma- manufacturers and exclusion of liability and, and how much profit was uh, was made as well. When you've got the government effectively 
mandating these vaccines, that's going to be a windfall for the corporations. I mean, you know, any sector, <laughs> if the government required everybody to buy a car, you know, whether you want to or not, you've got to buy a car. Well, obviously, the car industry profits are going to rise. And it's no different with um, with a COVID vaccine when you're threatened with expulsion from university or losing your job, losing the ability to support yourself and your loved ones. It's going to be big profits for for big pharma and people have every right to know what uh, what those numbers are. Not only that, there's other costs that are associated with, you know, early treatment or, I mean, early in the pandemic, you know, there was this huge uh, discussion about PPE and things like that. You know, uh, we were panicking about getting masks, enough masks for everybody. Well, was that necessary? We don't know. We should look at the science behind that. We should look at the science behind the ventilators as well. You know, I mean, there was another issue that came up huge, you know, big panic. It, uh, it absorbed a lot of uh, news time. And uh, was it necessary? That kind of thing. So, you know, we, sh- we should be examining a lot of financial issues rather than stick to scientific ones, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's, it's both. Absolutely. So Dr. Bardosh states in his report that it is his expert opinion that the data and conclusions presented below which document significant mental and physical health deterioration among Canadians were well known amongst the Canadian public by April of 2021. The apparent lack of full consideration of these social harms by the Ontario government and public health authority in April of 2021 was unjustified. And these considerations should have more fully influenced policy decisions. End of quote. So there again, it gets back to this, you know, ideology versus common sense and love for truth. Uh, if you love truth and you know, if, you're, uh, if, if you love wisdom, sometimes wisdom is described as common sense, then you look at the evidence before you. You don't just cling uh, with a fanatical tenacity to a, a preconceived notion that your policies are fantastic and, and the best. But again, that's what that's what ideology does, regardless of the you know nature of, of a particular ideology. Those who adhere to it, they've they've reached their conclusion already about what is the only big problem and how it needs to be solved. And uh, I suppose a, a big reluctance in calling a commission would be, I guess, bureaucratic butt covering. You know, they just wouldn't want an examination of what they did. You know, let's if there were mistakes made, well, we'll just have to you know learn from our, our actions and do better next time. And then they just want it left at that. I mean, of course, yeah, you're not necessarily focusing on blame laying, but at a certain point, you know, there will be some, if you say their mistakes are made. The idea though, of course, is to put on the record what those mistakes were so that we, we don't do it again for heaven's sake. Yeah. Well, it's quite shocking here. Dr. Bardosh says, uh, he said, as I show below, academic publications from 150 peer-reviewed studies representing hundreds of Canadian scholars show alarming data about the negative consequences of these policies on all aspects of Canadian society. And of course, Dr. Bardosh in this report, uh, which by the way, it's posted at www.jccf.ca. If you do a search on our website, there's a Q button. And if you do a website search for Bardosh, B-A-R-D-O-S-H, you'll get a link and um, and that will take you to the 46-page report that is posted at uh, www.jccf.ca. 
He says, it is my expert opinion that the scholarly literature I outline below reflects a broad emerging consensus that the stringency and scale of government COVID-19 restrictions undertaken in Canada caused excessive and needless harm to the mental health, physical health, and well-being of Canadians. These effects will have long-term negative consequences on the future of Canadian society. Well, that sounds like a recommendation not to do it again. Yeah. So chapter two, the impact of restrictions on the mental health and well-being of Canadians. Reference to studies show deteriorating mental health in 2020 and 2021. Early studies found that home quarantine was associated with increased psychological distress, including panic, depression, and emotional disturbances. 38% of Canadians reported deterioration in mental health since the start of the pandemic. Second study in May 2020 among older adults in Ontario found 43% felt lonely at least some of the time during lockdowns and 8% always or often. Using pre-pandemic 2018 data for comparison, the first lockdown in Quebec increased insomnia, significantly worsened sleep quality, fatigue, and depression. 14-day home quarantine period has also been associated with higher odds of suicide, ideation, deliberate self-harm. Now, everything I'm reading here, I'm not reading the footnotes, okay? So if you go to this report, all of these assertions are supported with specific links that will take you to those studies that are being that are being referenced. Studies consistently show alarming mental health deterioration during the pandemic among Canadians, including psychological distress, insomnia, depression, fatigue, suicide, uh, self-harm, anxiety disorders, and life satisfaction. Many studies also show that mental health continued to decline in 2021 compared to 2020. But yeah, go figure. 2021 got worse. We, well, I, it's debatable whether it was worse or not. I mean, well, there, there's a question. Is is it is it worse? When you have vaccine passports, so now you've got your restaurants, gyms, uh, movie theaters, et cetera, are, are reopened, but everybody's privacy is violated because everybody, whether you got this injected with this uh, new COVID vaccine or not, you have to disclose that personal, private, confidential medical information to a total stranger when you go into a restaurant or a movie theater or a gym. And if you have not, so everybody's privacy rights are violated. That's bad. And if you have not taken the shot, you are a second-class citizen subjected to a lot of public hatred with uh, political rhetoric and so on. So let me ask you, Kevin, is that what, what's worse? Uh, lockdowns for everybody, 100% of the population, but no vaccine passports. So you still have some privacy rights. Or was it worse when the lockdowns were lifted but replaced with mandatory vaccination. What do you say? I think it was worse. I, I, I think that got worse uh, with the mandatory vaccination because I, I, you know, you look at my list and what is one of the things they got wrong while well, vaccine efficacy, right? So, I mean, obviously it was based on false science and it gave everybody a false sense of security, right? So it was essentially, well, I guess you could call it a big lie, although I don't know whether they knew it at the time, but but it gave everybody this false sense of security. It created an underclass as well, did all kinds of harms to society. It fractured society. you know. And, and to this day, there's still that going on, at least if you go on Twitter, where there's always fights, of course, but you know, the, the vaxxers, the anti-vaxxers are still uh, hurling insults at each other and probably will to the end of time. So yeah, there was some serious damage done, uh, I think, not only to the medical community, but to the society as a whole, you know, 
And so that's why I would I would say that when they implemented the uh, the segregation and the vaccine passports, that uh, the, that was greater harm. I think it's I think it's apples and oranges. I don't I don't really disagree. I think it's a different kind of harm. I think the lockdowns without vaccine passports just inflicted a, a lot of harm on well, pretty much one hundred percent of the population. I mean the the seniors in long term care facilities who were uh, not able to see their loved ones at all, and their care declined severely, and the fear mongering, uh, totally unjustified, fact free fear mongering that the politicians engaged in, got a lot of workers at these long term care facilities to be terrified of showing up for work when there's no need to, because if you're 20, 30, 40, 50 years old and you're in decent health, uh, you should fear COVID as much as you should fear you know, dying of a car accident when you get into a car, which is, you know, yes, yes, there is a, a tiny chance that you might die, but basically you're going to be fine, right? Which is why, why do people get into cars anyway? You know, because we feel that the, the, the convenience and the, you know, utility of being able to get from point A to point B outweighs that small risk of death. But so you have the government fear-mongering scares the workers who don't show up for work. And then in, in Quebec, it was like, a war zone, you know, the soldiers came in there and there's, there's poorer senile seniors and, you know, in, in wheelchairs and, and their diaper hasn't been changed. And it was just a horrific scene caused by false fear mongering on the part of politicians. So I think the, uh, all of the population got harmed. So the people in the long-term care facilities, it's hard to think of something more cruel than to tell somebody you are not allowed to be in the same room with your dying mother, dying father, dying beloved friend, dying aunt, uncle, grandparent. You're not allowed to see that person. You can't say goodbye to that person. You can't tell that person how much you love them and how much that they meant to you. These are some of the most profound and sacred moments in our human lives is when you spend time with a loved one who, who is dying, who's going to die very soon. And here you had the health authorities making that illegal. And forcing seniors to die alone, uh, which was bad for those seniors, but it was also bad for the surviving family members that were not allowed to hold their hand, comfort them, or or express their love. Just just pure evil. Now, vaccine passports is a different kind of evil because you get that segregation. I mean, life is back to normal largely for a lot of people. So restaurants, gyms, movie theaters are open. You know, sporting activities, cultural, recreational activities are back in vogue. So that's really good for, uh, you know, 80, 90% of the population. But it's pretty vicious when millions of Canadians are publicly condemned and subjected to hate speech and ostracized over a, a valid personal medical choice. And again, getting to the efficacy as well. For what? Right. You know, for what benefit? And that's... Uh well, that was based, and the vaccine passports was based on another big lie for which there is no evidence, and this has been discredited. But the big lie is that if you are injected with the uh, the COVID vaccine, that you are not spreading the virus to anybody else. Because if if people that got injected are still spreading the virus, then there's absolutely no logical medical scientific basis whatsoever for any kind of discrimination against people not getting the shot. And so the, the big lie that was 
promoted by politicians in September 2021 with the vaccine passports was if you get injected with this stuff, you're, you're a good citizen, you're not spreading the virus anymore. But the remaining whatever 10, 15, 20% not getting injected, they are dangerous spreaders and they deserve to be treated like second class citizens. Now, that got completely debunked by virtue of the fact that <laughs> so many people that got injected with COVID vaccine, they got sick anyway. Uh, and why, why with 85% vaccination rates, you know, why did Omicron, uh, which was much less harmful than, than the original version, but why did Omicron spread everywhere? And why was the virus spreading in places like Gibraltar and Israel that had, you know, 97% or 99% vaccination rates? I mean, it just became very obvious early on that getting injected with this with this new vaccine was not going to stop the spread. And still, it persisted for, for the next uh, 12 to 16 months. A good argument for getting a lot of different jurisdictions to do a commission would be to, you know, pull out the stats on things like, you know, what was the actual distinction between deaths from COVID and deaths with COVID. I mean, this is something that I think is still pretty murky. And so we don't really have actually a good idea of how deadly this uh, virus was. I, I seem to have a vague sense of, uh, you know, how bad it was because they muddled the stats so badly. Well, that too. I mean, there is a lack of, uh, there is an obvious lack of honesty there where people, you know, somebody had committed suicide by jumping off of a building and they get, you know, taken into hospital and then, oh, they do a COVID test. Oh, it looks like he's got some COVID, which of course, if you're using the PCR test and, you know, yeah. jacking it up to 40 cycles, everybody's got COVID. And then that gets listed as a COVID death. And I've heard from a lot of uh, nurses and other healthcare workers that have seen firsthand uh, anybody that had COVID in their body, whether they're, you know, a gunshot wound or, uh, you know, a sporting accident, broken leg, uh, suicide, suicide attempt, whatever. If if you uh, you got given the COVID test and if you uh, tested positive, which again is very easy to test positive when you jack up the PCR cycles to, to 40 or more, uh, there is a lack of honesty on the part of government not revealing the number of cycles being used by PCR tests. Uh, I've tried myself. I talked to a lab. This was a year and a half ago. I can't remember. I needed a COVID test for something or other. And I got this result. I had tested negative, but regardless, I, I said, how many cycles uh, are you running the PCR test at? They refused to say. And I made multiple queries. How many cycles are you putting this PCR uh, test on? And they won't say, you know, that, and th that is so utterly anti-science. Well, exactly. Yeah. This is the kind of thing that I think need, deserves to be put on the record and put before the public. And of course, like I say, compared in different jurisdictions as well. I mean, there's international stats and international examples of jurisdictions that followed other uh, methods of approaching the pandemic or the the COVID panic. Uh, Sweden, for instance, you know, had a method that was initially praised and then discredited and then praised again, you know. Uh, these provide good comparisons, and I think that uh, we need to publicly acknowledge those and uh, compare our jurisdictions to them as well. Well, this will be a topic to be studied for years. Uh, Dr. Bardosh says, uh, reading again from the report, quote, it is highly likely that data from 2022 will show that the increase in mental health service demand has continued to increase 
there is often a lag time between mental health deterioration and clinical presentation. And it is likely to take many years to fully understand the scale and impact of the negative effects of pandemic restrictions on the mental health of Canadians, end quote. Oh, certainly. And especially in young children, you know, I mean, I remember the terrors of my childhood and, you know, nuclear winter nightmares and stuff like that. They persisted into my early 20s. So, you know, these kids are going to be haunted by, I assume, something uh, regarding the pandemic for years to come. And that's going to be hard to gauge. Yeah. Here's another quote, especially relevant for those who really care about the poor and the downtrodden and the marginalized and the vulnerable. Quote, overall, studies consistently show that individuals with pre-existing social and economic vulnerabilities experienced greater mental health deterioration. And he cites from various studies showing that there's disproportionate suffering amongst racial and ethnic minorities, the unemployed, those experiencing family conflict, and those with pre-existing disabilities and mental health conditions. Now here too, the, the, the science matches up with common sense. It, it stands to reason if you force people into isolation that somebody who is either married or you know in a relationship, possibly with children, or let's say somebody is living with an adult, living with an elderly parent, people who are not living alone, which is I think 60-70% of the population is not living alone. It's going to be less hard on them, the the social isolation and and making it illegal to, you know, connect with friends at a pub. But you've got a a big chunk of the population. I don't have the data in front of me, but I'd heard it's about a third of Canadians that actually live alone, right? So it's somebody, they live in their own house or their own apartment. They don't have roommates. They don't have family members. You've got a big chunk of the population, even if it's not a third, might be a quarter or a fifth. You've got a lot of people that live alone. It's a lot harder on those. The lockdowns are a lot harder on those people. Uh, their section of the this uh, report by Dr. Kevin Bardosh, government policies created unemployment and destroyed small businesses. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business, January 2021, found that only 47% of small businesses were fully open and estimates that 7% to 21% of Canadian businesses were at risk of, of closing. Uh, this was especially hard on the food and hospitality sector, which lost over $20 billion in 2020 alone. This gets callously shrugged off by the public sector and the laptop class. Uh, I've I talked with a number of individuals in the last three years and, you know, lawyers and accountants and academics, uh, they're working behind a laptop. They can work from home. So they're not suffering the economic loss. Certainly the public sector, the federal government workers, provincial government workers, municipal government workers, teachers, social workers, politicians, judges, all of these people, they just collected their full paycheck. And so they often have very little sympathy or compassion for other people that lost you know, a third of their income or two thirds of their income or hundred percent of their income. So you think that uh, a commission might uh, bring those people to mind uh, to those people that, you know, say, what rights did you lose or things like, you know, what income did, what did you lose during the pandemic? You were safe. 
Well, you're going to see now. Don't get me wrong. There are uh, there are members of the laptop class that and public sector workers that have also suffered uh, because some of these mental health harms of being forcibly isolated and and it was illegal to connect with other people in person. That did impact members of the laptop class as well as the public sector. So it's it's not black and white. But from the financial lens, the people who were spared the hardship were the laptop class of lawyers, accountants, uh, some engineers, most academics, et cetera, and the public sector. And and then some people got a a windfall. So, for example, uh, my wife has a cousin who's a young lady in a small town in BC who's working at a shopper's drug mart or some other retail store, and she's working 10 hours a week. She got pushed out of her job but then started collecting $2,000 a month in CERB benefits, which was far more than what she was working, and she didn't have to work for it. So again, that's, that's also a perversion because that's tax dollars that people, people are working hard to earn income, and they have to pay taxes out of that. So you get the hard-earned tax dollars are going to pay people $2,000 a month to collect more money than what they were earning before when they had to work for it and they were working 10 hours a week. Right, yeah. So I guess we could say there's a lot of issues examined in a commission that will look at the uh, pandemic response. How about human rights and constitutional rights? I ask you this before I go ahead and nominate you to sit on the Manning Commission. Should that well, be the, part of it? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, the, the test that the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms requires government officials to go through is if you are violating any charter right or freedom, so that could be Charter Section 2, freedoms of conscience, religion, expression, association, peaceful assembly. Uh, could be mobility rights, that's Charter Section 6. It could be Charter Section 7, right to life, liberty, and security of the person, which includes the right to bodily autonomy. Whenever governments violate charter rights and freedoms, governments have to do a cost-benefit analysis And so the onus was on the government, still is on the government, to show that the lockdowns actually produced more good than harm. It's the governments that need to uh, demonstrably justify that. But uh, ironically, and I'm going to jump back into Dr. Bardosh's report, quote, the pandemic created a generational paradox. Those at low risk of bad clinical outcomes from the virus were the most severely affected by government restrictions. So he goes through that the mental health harms on young people were especially alarming, more so than mental health harms suffered by people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and so on. And so there's an irony there. Uh, The younger you are, the less risky COVID is, right? Children are as likely to die of COVID as children are to die of lightning strikes, meaning, yes, in a country of 38 million people, Uh, You might have one or two or three or four children die each year of lightning strikes, which are horrific human tragedies. And uh, without taking away from that being horrific human tragedy, it's also statistically insignificant. If you've got four people in a population of 38 million, it means that your chance of getting the chance of a child getting killed by a lightning strike is practically zero. And that's that's how high the risk is to children of COVID. So, So children are the least threatened by it. And then Basically, the the older you get, the more that COVID is a threat to you. I know. 
And just before we go here, because we're running out of time, I just want to say in terms of that rights review that I was suggesting and uh, thinking about nominating you for the uh, seat on the commission, there should probably be some kind of judicial review as well, because courts have to respond to these, you know, them taking away the rights in a timely fashion. This is an issue that, you know, a lot of people are upset at the fact that, you know, the courts can say, okay, we just, you know, sat on our hands for like, two years and now we're going to declare it moot so we don't have an answer for you and i think that has to be worked into any kind of commission some kind of idea that you know there has to be an adequate legal response well the justice center's court cases are ongoing some of them are at the trial level others have gone to court of appeal level the great thing about the court actions is that they do shed light on facts that would otherwise never see the light of day. Uh, for example, uh, Brian Peckford's uh, court challenge to the to the travel restrictions, right? Where the we talked about this, you know, a second class citizen. Uh, if you're one of these filthy, unvaccinated uh, morons that you're not allowed to get onto an airplane, like a good Canadian is allowed to get onto an airplane. I'm being a little bit sarcastic and facetious with with my language, but that's basically what it boiled down to: is is you know, if if you if you didn't get this shot, then uh, you are vile. You should be ashamed of yourself, and we're going to treat you differently from the rest of the population. Now, sadly, and this is outrageous, but the federal court trial division, after you know hundreds of hours of work was put in by lawyers on our side and lawyers on the government side, and all this evidence had been put in and expert medical people had been cross-examined, et cetera, et cetera. The judge dismissed it as moot, saying it was no longer relevant because these travel restrictions were no longer in force. Now, that's sad and tragic. I don't want to minimize the harm of that. Uh, We've appealed that to the Federal Court of Appeal. We'll wait and see what they have to say on it. However, what's really important is, thanks to this court action, government officials admitted under oath that there's no medical or scientific basis for the travel restrictions. That is an admission that we would never, ever have received from any government official, not from the prime minister, not from a cabinet minister, not from anybody, would have uh, admitted to that at a news conference. Uh, certainly not with the softball questions that the government-funded media are, are asking these people. Uh, but even even if you had uh, representatives there from you know, outlets like the Epoch Times and the Rebel and True North and uh, Counter Signal, et cetera, et cetera, even if you had these people... Uh, at the news conference, there's no way federal government officials would ever admit outside of a court action where they are now under oath and they've sworn an affidavit and they're getting cross-examined on the affidavit. Outside of a court action, they would never have admitted that there is no medical or scientific basis for the travel restrictions. So these court actions are uh, are important. And I want to thank, again, uh, all of our generous donors in 2020, 2021, 2022. And if you are listening, we've got uh, we've got to keep the support coming in for our 13 staff lawyers and our 10 paralegals. So if you are listening, please donate at www.jccf.ca. You can go online. You can do a, um, you can donate by credit card online. You can do an e-transfer. Uh, if you prefer to mail in a check, the address is on the website for you to mail in a check. And we are currently in the month of February. Uh, we are sending out tax receipts. So uh, bear that in mind as well, that when you, uh, when you donate to the Justice Center, you're getting an official tax receipt. Uh, so part of that money comes back to you in the form of lower taxes as well. 
Great. Okay. Well, I think that's probably a good place to end the show. Thanks a lot, John, for participating in Episode 8 in the fourth season of Justice with John Carpe. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Take care, Kevin. Have a great week. 